Good morning. I'm going to be comfortable this morning, if you don't mind. <laughs> Thank you again for the invitation to your beautiful church home. I am traveling today from Waco uh, with some of my Baylor crew, who I would like to introduce, Gianna, Caroline, Naisha, and my boyfriend, Jose, from Mississippi, my uncle and aunt, Martha and Ralph. From Austin. So again, thank you so much for extending a welcome into your home. We are grateful to be here today. When I first was asked to preach on this text, Judges 19, the story of the Levite concubine, I realized how difficult and divine of an opportunity this was. Considering I already had research on her story from Dr. Non-Scriptures class at Truett and from the Bible study in my residence hall that I conducted where I am a chaplain, her story has reverberated across my mind and my heart over the last two years. And I felt it was no coincidence that I was asked to preach this morning on this text. I feel honored that God would allow me to share such a weighty narrative full of pain and chaos, a narrative that causes anger and questions. Her story reminds me of our responsibility to continue to listen to narratives from the margins because her story still continues today. The Levite concubine still speaks, and it is our responsibility to listen. First and foremost, we must give her a voice. This is a narrative that commands our attention, and it demands that we respond. It demands that we speak. It's a story that we want to forget. We want to easily skim over when we read Old Testament texts of the of scripture, but we are commanded to retell. We are commanded to speak her story again and again, generation after generation. The betrayal, rape, torture, and dismemberment of an unnamed woman is a story we must continue to speak if we are to be a faithful community of Christ followers. When faced with difficult passages in scripture, we are not necessarily to emulate this behavior, not at all, in fact. When faced with difficult passages in scripture, we are called to analyze and to critically wrestle with what is this text teaching us about God? What is this text teaching us about humanity? We look to scripture to interpret scripture and we also look to the entirety of the canon itself. So examining this story, examining Judges 19, must begin with looking at the book of Judges. We see the climax of each story in Judges as being more violent than the one before, resulting in Judges 19 being the ultimate climax of the canon. Judges 19 must be interpreted through the lens of Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
This is a story of the downward spiral of human depravity in which each narrative gets more horrific than the one before. Anarchy, violence, and vengeance plague Israelite society. And it is important to note that men are the central actors in Judges 19. The women are silent. And while the Levite and the concubine are the central foci of the story, the concubine does not speak throughout this entire narrative. From beginning to end, she has no agency. She has no power. Because she is not the Levite's wife, she has an even lower status than women in her culture who were already objectified in a patriarchal society. Her concubine status makes her vulnerable to the actions of those men around her, men who do not care about her in the least. Judges 19 begins and ends with a faceless, nameless, and powerless woman whose agency is non-existent. In the words of Gustavo Guterres, she is a non-person. And as a non-person, this makes her subject to male violence and to the power of male control. The beginning of Judges 19 finds her escaping her male master for unknown reasons. Perhaps the Levite was incredibly abusive to her. Perhaps she was unhappy. The text does not say. What we do know is that for a woman to run away from her master and escape to her father's household in that culture would have meant risking her life. She could have been killed for running away. And yet Judges 19 introduces her with running away. And this is the only action of agency she has throughout the entire passage. This could be read as an act of desperation. Yet when she arrives to her father's house, she does not find safety. Her courageous decision to run away is met with betrayal. For months later, when the Levite decides he wants her back, he seeks to reclaim his property at her father's house. And her father, although hesitantly, gives her back. He betrays her. He delays the Levite almost as if he is unsure of whether his daughter's safety is secure. Reluctantly, but willfully, he gives her back to the Levite. And from this point on, the Levite is subject, the concubine is object. He is actor and she is acted upon. Both male father and male master neglect the concubine's desire for personal choice. Again, she has no voice. And she is left at the mercy of the Levite who risks traveling in the evening, well aware of the dangers that might ensue. The, na the narrative continues as we read in Judges that the Levite did not want to stay in the town of Jebus because it was a city of foreigners who do not belong to Israel. So he pushes onward, unaware of his own violent irony in this decision-making. The entire book of Judges seems to show that this downward spiral of human depravity is because of foreigners. 
until we get to Judges 19, we are tempted to conclude that the real problem of idolatry and disobedience is because of outside influences. Yet at the end of Judges 19, we see that the real problem is not with the outside. It's with the inside. Arriving at the town of Gebeah, the Levite and his concubine seek shelter. The Levite thinks he is safe. He is in a tribe of Israel. A Benjamite is the only man who shows him hospitality. And as danger knocks at the door, we see male power confronted with male power. And the phrase, to know him, connotates a will to violate the Levite sexually. And again, two voiceless and nameless females are offered up as a sacrifice to protect the Levite. Symbolically, the doorway of the Benjamite's house is the boundary between hostility and hospitality. As throughout the night, only the females cross this threshold. Males do not cross this boundary. For once the Benjamite and the Levite are safely inside, they remain inside. Only the females are expendable to the demands of men. The implication being, of course, that such an act done to a man is vile. Such an act done to a male guest is unacceptable. But if it's done to a woman, it's permissible. The wicked men of the town are given license to rape the women, both the Levite and the other unnamed woman. A mirror of the story in Genesis. This is a mirror of Genesis where Lot sacrifices his own daughter to protect the hospitality that's given only to men. The rules of hospitality in ancient Israel are very strict, but they only protect men. They don't protect the women. And in verses 25 and 26, the text uses plural verbs and time references to illustrate that this crime was not a single act. This was multiple acts of violence done at multiple times. After being tortured all night, daybreak arrives as the concubine barely makes it to the Benjamite's house with her hand on the threshold. She wavers between life and death. The Greek translation of the canon claims that she is dead, but the Hebrew translation is silent allowing for interpretation that perhaps she could still be alive. Her master decides to take her back to his home and mutilate her body into 12 pieces, each piece given to a different tribe of Israel, almost as if he is saying, look what you've done to my property. You've destroyed my property. Now she's no good to me anymore and I will mutilate her to prove a point. That concubine who left her master is the object of his appalling violence. The concubine is alone in a world of men. She is property, she is object, and she is tool. Passing her back and forth among themselves, the men of Israel completely obliterate her. Captured, Betrayed, 
raped, tortured, murdered, and dismembered, and now she is scattered. This woman is the most sinned against in all of Scripture. In her book, Text of Terror, Phyllis Tribble says, misogyny belongs to every age, including our own. Violence and vengeance are not just characteristics of a distant pre-Christian past. They infect the community of the elect to this day. Women as object are still captured, betrayed, tortured, murdered, dismembered, and scattered. To take to heart this ancient story then is to confess that it's still present, is to confess its present reality among us, because this story is alive and all is not well. The Levite concubine still speaks today, and women who suffer abuse at the hands of their husbands, she still speaks in women who attempt to cross borders seeking asylum and are met with betrayal, rape, and dismemberment. Read newspapers and you will find women without breasts, without noses, without genitalia. Their countries have turned blind eyes to their oppression. She still speaks. The Levite concubine is still speaking today. And while this hermeneutic of the oppressor versus the oppressed is a valid and critical lens to read this passage, maybe scripture is wanting us to look at an even deeper truth, that we are all alienated from God when we choose to ignore the ways in which he invites us into life with him. The Israelites are supposed to live by covenantal laws of communal living, framed by love and hospitality, yet they continually choose what is right in their own eyes. They continually forsake their neighbor, and they forsake God. Perhaps remembering Genesis 3, 4, and 6, the downward spiral of human depravity can be read as a mirror text to help us grapple with life apart from God. Life apart from God essentially entails estrangement of hostility, estrangement and hostility of neighbor, because love of God and love of neighbor cannot be separated. And life apart from God will always lead to estrangement of neighbor. Further still, what's troubling about this passage is where is God? Where was he in the midst of an ending chaos? Was he present as a concubine was being raped, dismembered, and scattered? The text does not say. But I believe that not only was God present in the midst of chaos and deep suffering, but that he wept as a Levite was being raped that he mourned and cried out as her body was dismembered and scattered, as her body shattered, the heart of God shattered. The image of the suffering Christ is an image of God weeping over the suffering concubine. 
God's heart breaks at the brokenness of our world. And perhaps this image of the suffering concubine and the suffering Christ who weeps with her, who weeps over her, is one that we would like to forget because it doesn't give us a happy ending. And we want happy endings. We yearn for the day when Christ will make right what is unright. But perhaps this morning we are asked to sit in darkness. Perhaps we are invited to enter into the place of pain and chaos with the Levite. To sit in the present reality that oppression weighs heavy. And so often, if we're not careful, we can be both the oppressed and the oppressor unaware. This story is our story. We are tasked to listen to it with deep conviction. God is present, but not only is he present, but he suffers with us. The suffering Christ cannot be understood apart from his suffering alongside humanity. He is the God who is near, who understands, and who weeps over us. Just as much as he is a victorious Christ, he is a wounded Christ. Yes, chaos is present, but God is ever present. Maybe we aren't guaranteed happy endings all the time. Perhaps being people of God simply means we have good news. God is here. You are loved, and God is enough. Amen.